Let's start in, in Matthew chapter 16. And I want to read this to you. Matthew 16. And when we read Matthew 16, we're seeing for the first time Jesus mentioned something that has not been mentioned ever before in the Bible. And that is Matthew chapter 16. And we read this. When Jesus in verse 13 came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. By the way, do you know what Caesarea Philippi was? Do you guys know anything geographically about what that place was? Okay, fascinating place. If you've ever studied any mythology or pagan worship in ancient Canaan or in uh, the old in old Israel before the Israel before the before Joshua came with his armies uh, to take the Promised Land, that location is at the bottom of a mountain that was dedicated to demonic worship. There's a lot there's a lot of discussion about that Mount Hermon in Genesis chapter six about angels coming down and intermingling with human beings to destroy the purity of the human race because the idea was was that we're that there would be no pure human seed that when the savior is born that he would not be purely human that he could not die for the human race that was an angelic demonic strategy to come in and to destroy the human race so that it can never be a pure that there could never be a pure savior and we know that's why the flood happens one of the reasons why the flood happens and so here in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus is going north with his disciples, and he's going up to Genesis chapter, he's in, in, in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is beginning to understand, <clears throat> even in Matthew 12, that him coming as the Son of God to Israel to bring the kingdom of God onto the earth, his, his original plan was, and this was the prophecy of the entire Old Testament was that Christ would come and he would bring the kingdom of God in the manifest form on the earth and that Israel, that his kingdom would be in Jerusalem and that he would reign, he would rule the earth and that, uh, that through, the, through the Israeli nation that the, that the righteousness of God would be ruling over the entire earth over the Gentiles. But as Jesus, and that was the message of John the Baptist, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Remember him saying that? Jesus here, Matthew 12, and then Matthew 13, it becomes apparent that he's going to be rejected. That Israel is going to reject their Messiah. That he's going to be rejected. And not only rejected, but he was going to be murdered. He, that he was, going to be, he was going to be massacred in a torturous way out of abject hatred and rejection. Jesus began to understand that. And so the kingdom of God that it was being spoken about, being manifested on the earth... Jesus talks, starts talking about, there's a little theology here in Matthew 13, he begins talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, which is the invisible form of the kingdom of God. Are you following me? When we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about God on the earth in Jesus Christ, on the throne of Jesus Christ, ruling the earth. We talk about that as the millennial period, the 1,000 years when Christ is reigning on the earth. We read about that in the book of Isaiah. But that was rejected. Jesus was rejected. And now Jesus begins to talk about that there's going to be an invisible kingdom. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is here. But it's going to be an invisible form. And that's Matthew chapter 13. And then in Matthew 16, as Jesus is speaking, the disciples are not really getting it. And so Jesus begins to talk about this kingdom of heaven. And he begins to ask this question here. He asked his disciples in verse 13, who do people say that the son of man is? 
and verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. Why? Because Jesus had this characteristic of being passionate and radical and out there on the fringes, outside the box. And others say Elijah because of the miracles of Jesus. That Elijah was, was, that Jesus was like Elijah, that he was performing these powerful miracles. And others said Jeremiah and, or one of the prophets. And why did they say Jeremiah? Because Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. He was a prophet that had just a, an emotional, stirring message for Israel. And that he was being rejected. Yet his whole heart was in it and he was passionate. And some say, and this is what Christianity is like today. People are talking about what Jesus is like, but they're missing the person. They're missing the person of Jesus Christ. And this is one of the main things I want to talk about this morning. People are saying, oh, Jesus is like this, and he's like that, and he's kind of like this guy, or he's kind of like this. But here Peter steps in, and he says, and he said in verse 15, he said to them, but, and he turns to his disciples. So he's talking to the crowd, and people are saying, well, you're like this and like that. Then he turns to his disciples, and his disciples are understanding who Jesus is. They're following the personhood of God. They're, they're, they are focusing, they're gazing on the personhood of Jesus Christ. And then Peter says, he says in verse 16, Simon Peter replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. And that's very important because when you and I understand who Jesus Christ is, that's when blessing begins. I think we seek blessing. We're seeking all of this good stuff. This, this good life, we're seeking all of this from God, but it only begins when we have a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Who is Christ? And Jesus says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is what we call spiritual revelation, spiritual illumination. That, this, that the church today, the American church today, Many times is not living in person in spiritual revelation through the scriptures of what the Holy Spirit is saying about who Jesus is. When we come to church, that is my primary goal as a pastor. My primary goal as a pastor is that whoever walks through these doors and whoever doesn't, whoever walks through these doors, whatever kids are here, is that people would have a revelation of who Jesus Christ is. That they walk out the door and say, "We discovered an aspect. We studied. We adored. We worshipped." A characteristic of Jesus Christ that, that I've never seen before. And, and, and Jesus says, congratulations, bravo, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. We cannot have flesh and blood reveal something about who God is to us. In 1 John, we read this very interesting verse. The Apostle John says to, he says to the church, and he says that you have no, you have no need that any man teach you for you, have, for you have the anointing. Now, what is he saying there? Is he saying that we don't need teachers? That we, get, that we don't need people to... We don't need to sit under teaching. We don't need a Bible school. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But that we don't need uh, any kind of systematic teaching in our life. We don't need a man to teach us. It's not saying that. Because in the Greek, if you read the Greek, it says you don't need any soulish man to teach you. Some carnal man to teach you information or knowledge or a psychological message, or an attractional message, but we need spiritual teaching. We need someone that is, that, like we heard Daphne, okay? And she's not here so we can talk about her. She's, I mean that in a good way. Is that when you're listening to Daphne, you're hearing spirituality, aren't you? You're hearing spiritual things. You're hearing, you're, your spirit is being taught. And whenever we're spirit taught, guess what? We never forget that. 
You know, we're gonna, we can be physically taught. We can cram in high school, cram in college, and study all this stuff. I don't know how much you guys remember algebra. I don't remember a thing. I remember there's an X, there's a Y, and there's a Z, and I don't know how, what the rest of it is. But what my spirit has learned about the nature and the character and the work of Jesus Christ, I'm never going to forget that. And maybe 20 years down the road, and this happened to me the other day, I wake up, and there's a verse there in my mind that I haven't thought about for maybe years. But it's in there. It's in the spiritual memory. And your spiritual memory will never forget. And this is what is called spiritual being spiritually taught. But my Father has revealed this unto you, which is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And we've said this before. But when Peter gets a revelation of who Jesus Christ is, guess what happens? Jesus reciprocates. And, and Bud and I have talked about this. Jesus reciprocates and says, and you're Peter. You are Peter. I think we live in a society, don't we, that's so bent on self-esteem and discovering who you are and discovering the inner you and, and, and developing that and being true to yourself and, and all of this self-talk that we hear in our culture, in our American culture. We can go to the latest, you can go to the bookstore, you can go on Kindle, and you can find out some incredible stuff just about who you are. And by the way, it is all fallen and it's just incomplete information because it's Gnostic by nature. It is the glorification And the book of Proverbs tells us, it says that a fool seeks to discover himself. If you don't, if we don't know who we are, if we don't know, if we're struggling with our identity, and by the way, every one of us, until we meet Jesus Christ, we don't know who we are. We don't fully understand who I am as a human being and what my purpose is. Until we discover who Jesus Christ is, then there's not not that reciprocation of you are Peter. You are Peter. I mean, you are called Simon, but I'm, I'm giving you another name. I'm giving you purpose. I'm giving you, I'm giving you destiny. And I'm giving, I'm giving you a sense of the plan, that we're going somewhere, that there's a calling on your life, Peter. And upon this rock, and then he says it. He says the magic word. He says a word that's never been said really before in the Bible. And he says it for the first time in history. He says, and upon this rock, and he, I think he's pointing to himself He's standing, Jesus is standing in the background where, where there's that altar of Khan, which is that demonic god of, of whatever. And he is standing there, and there's this big mountain behind him, and he says, but upon this rock, and he's pointing to himself, I will build my church. I'm going to build my church on me, Peter. This is who you are, Peter, but I'm going to build my church on me. And I love that, because as a pastor, when I hear that, it means that I'm not trying to build something. I'm not here to try. I mean, we have a plan. We have a vision. We have a goal. There's things that are in our hearts to do, but it's not. It's not. It's not based on me. When I when I got ordained as a pastor years ago, I was talking to a, a man who was discipling, who really had been just a mentor to me in many ways. And I said, you know, what is your what's your advice for me as a as a, just a pastor starting out, starting a church in Ukraine? And he goes, you know, never make. He said, he goes, my life is Christ. My life is not my church. And what he meant by that is, he said, because sometimes the church is going to be doing great, and there's going to be awesome things going on in the church, and sometimes it's going to go stuff through stuff. And he said, if you as a pastor, and you as a laborer, and you as a team member, whatever you do in the church, worship individual on the worship team, or in the Sunday school, or AV, or, or productions, if Christ is not your life, then you're going to be a spiritually manic depressant, Right? If my family's my life, which my family is so important to me, and my family's been given to me by God to lead and to love and to care for, 
But if Christ is not my life first, then I'm giving my wife fallen flesh. And that's not pretty. She doesn't like that. And I don't think any of our mates or friends or family members appreciate fallen flesh. And so he's saying, I'm building on this rock and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. Right behind them was what they called the, what the pagans called the gates of hell. There was like a pit there and they, they believed it go, that, that it went down into hell. That this is, this is Jesus speaking. He's talking about the church. And so when we talk about the church, when we talk about the first church, we have to understand a couple things that, that first of all, um, Paul here, Paul here begins to expound on it in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And I want to read these verses together with you. If you would read with me in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. Ephesians 3, chapter 3, verses 6 through 11. And he talks about the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church. And he says this, the mystery, verse 6, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. I'm reading from the uh, English Standard Version. The mystery is that the Gentiles, Gentiles are us, non-Jews, we are not Jews, are fellow heirs, that we're in on it, that we are in on the salvation package, members of the same body, because the Jews at that time were this exclusive, individ- these exclusive nation and individuals that had salvation. The Gentiles were not exclusive. They were outside the box. They were actually they were considered as dirty people, rejected. That you couldn't, the Orthodox Jew could not shake hands with a Gentile. That there were these, there was this massive racial and ethnic and religious separation. And that now we are partakers, it says, of the promise in Christ through Jesus, the, in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. And I was thinking about the gospel. The gospel is this: is that we are utterly helpless, lost, sin, fallen individuals. And if you, don't, if you don't think so, then just think about the last few hours of what your mind was like. And you'll be, you'll be reminded of like how fallen we are. We are fallen creatures. And the gospel is this, is that we in our, unsa- in our, in our state that we are not able to help ourselves or even to change ourselves, even though we know what's better, we can't change ourselves. The gospel is this, that God loved us. Since his son, Jesus stepped in because there was something about the love of Christ for us, which I don't know what that is. It's such a mystery that he so loved us that he was passionate about laying down his life for us. This is the gospel that we are much more loved than we could even ever imagine. This is what eternity is going to be about. Eternity is going to be about discovering how loved you and I are, how precious in, in heaven, when the angels look at the church, they're amazed. They're like, they are just, they are, we are celebrities. We are, it's like the royalty, you know, like um, Prince Harry and Meghan now are like no longer royalty, right? I guess they stepped out and now they're moving to Canada, and I guess. And, and, and that's a lot of talk right now. We are even more, we are, some of you are looking at each other like, what? <laughs> That we are more valuable and loved and more, and more accepted and more famous in heaven than, than royalty. We are looked at in every movement that you and I make because we're the bride of Christ is being, is being proclaimed and examined and loved and adored in the, in the courts of heaven. Can you imagine that? You're like, no, no, that can't be. I, that's, no, I, I don't even get it. And that's the mystery that we are so incredibly amazing in the grace and the blood of Christ so unconditionally loved. 
And so that we look at ourselves and we're like, no, that can't be. And so this gospel is made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, Paul said. And that was Paul's diploma, which was given to me by the working of his power to me through I am, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring the light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, and I want to hit this, mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. What is this mystery that was hidden in God for all ages? We say mystery, we think of like, okay, Google, or we think of uh, Apple. Do you know that they have these, these mega corporations, they're now buying mass swaths is the word, I guess, of land, of just unlimited acres of land in just these remote parts of the United States. And they're building these highly secretive factories and plants and energy, these energy networks. And they're just, nobody knows what's going on. It's like, it's like the Area 51 of the technological world. Nobody knows what's going on. It's like, People are asking, and they show these pictures of like these black buildings, and you can't go there. And it's like, what is going on? It's a mystery, right? When we talk about the mystery that's in the New Testament, it was, in the Old Testament, a discussion that God has in his mind a secret. And in this secret, the prophets and, and David the psalmist and other men of God had an inkling of what it was, but they didn't understand fully what it was. They said, God is up to something. He's got a plan. There's something in his mind, in his heart. There's something that he is, that when he's not busy, it's kind of like he goes into his quiet room and God opens up this little treasure box that nobody knows. Not even the angels know what's going on. Only him, the Holy Spirit, and his son know that in the mind of God, there is this group of people, Jews and Gentiles alike, that would be one man that is called the church. The called out people, the people that Jesus would be, that he would be spilling his blood for, the precious blood of Christ, this, this group of elites people that nobody in, in, in courtrooms of heaven would even understand. And even Satan, before he fell in, 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 in the book of Isaiah 16, he's talking about, I will ascend to the top of this mountain. He goes, even he understood that there was going to be a group of people that were going to be set apart by God and would be put in a place where they'd be lavished with grace and blessing and honor and they would receive so much grace that they could never receive. And even he understood, even Satan understood that this mountain, and mountains always talk about kingdoms in the, in the Bible, this mountain, this Zion would be uh, would be would be a, a, an amazing group of people. And this was hidden in the mind of God who created all things. So that in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made manifest to the rulers and authorities. Now we're talking about demonic authorities that are in Ephesians chapter two, verse two, in the air and in, in high places of government that was according to the eternal purpose that was realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So all that to say this is that the mystery of the church, the secret, exciting plan that God was so excited about is that he kind of could only give little bits and pieces through the prophets is now being manifest, is being now talked about in Matthew 16. My church, I will, I will 
build my church on myself. The church of Christ was the secret in the mind of God. He's not talking about the Israeli nation or the Jews because the Jews were in Abraham. They were in Abraham before the foundation of the world. But in Ephesians chapter 3, the church is in the mind of God before the foundations of the world. We are a special group of people. We're an amazing group of people. And what is the church not? We are not an extension of the, of, of the covenant of Israel. We are not an extension of the Israeli nation. We are not an extension of the, um, of the, of the Jewish dispensation. Or if we were, we would, as Gentiles, would be under the law. We'd be under the, under the ceremonies that, that the Jews would be responsible for keeping. Um, and the, the other thing that we're not is that we're not, we are not first in the organization. Because you know what? You can take an organization, you can take a building, you can take uh, property. And for example, we look at this building here, we see doors, we see windows, we see lights, we see a roof. We see parking lot. You can remove certain aspects of this building. You can remove windows, or you can replace a door, or you can take something out, and the integrity of the building would not change, right? It's still going to be here, and it's going to still be a building. But the church is not primarily a building. The church is an, organi- is an organism. We're, we're a body. The Bible talks about the church as being a temple. It talks about being a household. It talks about being... A body in First Corinthians chapter 12. If you were to remove, and so we as a body of people, we as the church um, are made up of, uh, we are organic. And if, I, if you were to remove um, Rodney's arm, that would do some major damage to Rodney, would not. That, that would be, that would compromise his, his existence. Or even if you were to tear off a, a fingernail, that would, that would um, impact the entire, entire, entire organism. We would suffer from every level it would be so painful and this is this is the body of christ this is the church that that um you cannot replace things you cannot remove things and replace it with something else and expect the integrity of the organ of the organism to continue does that make sense we are different than an organization the church is mentioned as the as as the um mystery of christ and that's the first thing i wanted to say this morning is that this is a sacred mystery when we talk about the church, and we were talking, I was just, my wife and I were with Bill and Candace the other night, and we were talking about this, that there's something so sacred about people. And, like, you and I probably know, the more we time, spend time together, the more we know about people's story. And you know something, the more we see, we can see fallen flesh, we can see fallen aspects of people. But the thing about the church is, is that we have been saved. The thing about the grace of God is, is that, that God has brought us into this place of grace where we're living a life of unmerited favor that we could never achieve, and there's something very sacred about it, okay? It's very sacred, meaning that I could look at, I could look at Eduardo, and, I could, and I, I could have such a sacred relationship with him because I know who he is in Christ, because I'm learning about who he is about in Christ. And that's what church life is. That's what fellowship is. When you and I are sitting down and we are opening the treasure houses and we're sharing Christ with each other. And, you know, I'm excited to get to know Kyle and, and his dad and just other folks that are coming in. I'm excited about finding who Christ is in them because for me, that enriches me, right? That's what fellowship is. Fellowship is when we're sitting down together, we're sharing Christ, and this is an enrichment. 
And this is something that makes the church very sacred. And I can't explain it, but when you have seen incredible grace on somebody's life, incredible grace, incredible lavish love on God, on, on that person, there's something sacred about that person, isn't it? There's just, it's just sacred that I know who that person is, but that's not who I relate to that person as. There's something bigger than that person, than his past and so that's the first thing, the mystery of the church. The second thing is the gaze of the church. What, when we look at the, when we start looking over the next few weeks about the first church, we begin to discover the distinctives of the first church and how the first church was on the move and how God was working through the church and that through the first church, God was manifesting his wisdom. God did not choose angels to manifest wisdom to this world. I mean, it would be awesome if angels just showed up in their spiritual beings and begin to speak, you know, on, on Fox News or CNN. <laughs> it's like, and I think there would be a following, right? That would be fantastic. That'd be, but God has not chosen that incredible, sensational way to communicate his wisdom. God has chosen you and I, right? He's chosen Lance. He's chosen Colton, right? He's chosen Liz. He's like, it's like he's chosen you and I in our brokenness to reveal the wisdom of God to our neighbor, to our to our to our, our community, to our neighborhood. God, and that is just an amazing thing. That is just an amazing thing. Here's what A.W. Tozer said about the church. You know, we often, sometimes we hear, we, we talk with people that are very disappointed with the church today. They, they say, this is what the church is not doing. Uh, I feel like we've drifted into something else. Uh, we've become an entity outside, we've become an identity, an entity outside of what we see in the first church. Uh, we see emphasis on things that are not emphasis that were in the New Testament. And there's been a complication that's come into the church that has made things so, so complicated that we're missing the single mom with the, with, the, with the child walking through the door that has so many burdens in their life and they just need someone to pray with them and to share Christ. We, we're missing the boat as the church. We're missing it. Why? Because, because we, are, we are looking at the wrong thing. We as a church, and so sometimes people, we talk with people, and I'm sure you've talked with them before, that we just need to totally redo church. We need to take it, we need to take the way we're doing it, tear it all apart, and just rebuild from the foundation up. And I understand that, I understand that conversation, I understand what people are saying with that, and I share that frustration sometimes with people. Because what we see today is not necessarily the, the, what we see happening in the New Testament. That is not the answer. Uh, that, that, that is an, that's an understanding that something's off. But for us to rethink church, for us to rebuild church, for us to, uh, re- dis- to, to rebuild it is not necessarily our primary, our primary mission in Ephesians chapter 4. We need to understand who we already are as a church. To grow in our identity as a church. That we are Peter that is living in a spiritual revelation about who Jesus Christ is in my situation. Okay, like whenever you and I live in fear, whenever we feel threatened, we want to run to our sublimation or we want to run to our dark corners. We want to run to places like pity or depression or we just want to withdraw and not talk to anybody. We're going to lash out or whatever we do when we begin to be unstable in our identity. We need to look at Christ and we need to look at him. We need to open our Bibles. By the way, as a Christian, we need to be in our Bibles. Okay, books are great. I'm all about life. But like, if I'm not in the Word, if, if I'm not reading the Gospels, if I'm not looking at Jesus, 
what he's doing? Is something wrong in my Christianity? If I'm not in the word of God and I'm in some other kind of Christian emphasis that's great and it's, it's elevating and it's, it's elational, if I'm not in the word, then I have no criteria for my faith. And when time, hard times come and when the winds blow, I'm going to be all over the place because my identity is going to be messed up and I'm not going to know who I am and I'm going to be grasping at whatever I can to affirm and to support my identity. Does that make sense? Because if I'm not in the word, it's like if I get insecure as a man, as a pastor, as a leader, as a husband, as a, as a father, and the times like that do happen, where do I need to go? I need to go to the word. And I need to look at who I am in Christ. I need to open up Ephesians chapter 4. I need to look at 2 Corinthians. I need to look at what Jesus is saying to Peter. I need to see what Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, 14 through 16. He says, I'm called when I'm in my mother's womb. And I love that story because before there's any history in Paul's, bad history in Paul's life, there's a calling on his life. Isn't that great? You and I look at each other like, okay, there's that, you know, that's his history. That's his storyline. That's the trouble that he and she has had. But that's not who you truly are. You and I are truly who we have been called to be in Galatians chapter 1, verse 16, that when I was in my mother's womb, I was sanctified, set apart for the gospel. Isn't that awesome? Before Paul had any history in his flesh, and before he had any testimony about bad stuff he's done, he had a storyline with God. He had a calling. Isn't that great? And that's our, where our identity begins. That's who you and I are. Amen? That's like, that's where it all starts. It begins with identity. And we need to understand that instead of tearing down the whole model of church to go back to discover who we are in Christ, and when we discover that, and that, by the way, for me, is the main mission of the church, to educate people of who we are in Christ and to reaffirm that, to talk about it, to reaffirm that in one another and say, you are not a fearful person. That's not who you are. That's what the devil projects at you, but that's not who you are. And then the gaze of the church. A.W. Tozer said this, and I love this. Um, and when we talk about a vision for the church, it's more than just a new business plan or rebranding an organization, but rather having a renewed insight on the personhood of Jesus Christ who passionately laid down his life for the church. I want us to go to Acts chapter 1, and then we're going to wrap it up here. A.W. Tozer said this. He said this. I love these words. He said, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people have ever risen above its religion. And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains a high or low thought of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. Who is God? Who is God? Who is God in this situation? Not who am I in this situation, but who is God? Who is God in this circumstance? A.W. Tozer said this. And if we look at Acts chapter 1, I want to hit a few points here before we, before we wrap it up. Acts chapter 1, verse 3. And we see here, and I'm reading in the Amplified Bible. I think it brings it out very well here. Acts chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And it says this. I love Luke, Dr. Luke. I love the way he writes. Uh, he wrote the book of Luke. Now he's writing the book of Acts. The book of Acts is just a chronicle. I think it's just a chronicle of what a community of people are doing when they discover how incredible Jesus is. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That's all it is. It's the Acts 
It's the acts of the church. And this is an incredible group of people. And this is this ragtag group of just individuals that kind of just pop up on the scene in Acts chapter 1 and 2 is the secret of God. And then here's, here's the devil. He says, okay, we're going to kill Jesus. We're going to kill him so that the plan of God can, so that this elite group of people of God's beloved and God's cherished people in the mind of God in eternity past never comes to pass. So we're going to kill Jesus. And the devil is just so dumb, he doesn't even understand. He's actually fulfilling the plan of God, even in his worst motives. Isn't that amazing? Like even the devil in all this evil, in some way that I can't figure out, in God's sovereign plan is actually executing the incredible redemptive work of God. And so Jesus is killed. He rises from the dead. And then we see this incredible church come to pass. And it says in verse 3, to them also he showed himself, and this is Jesus, alive. Let's stop right there. He showed himself alive. What was the first message? What was the primary message of the first church? The first 100 years? The resurrection of Christ. That's all they were talking about. He rose from the dead. We're talking about psychology. We're talking about self-improvement. We're talking about politics. We're talking about this. We're talking about that. We're talking about self-analysis. This is, that's the wrong message, guys. The message here is that he showed himself alive after his passion. And let's, let's look at that word for a second. After his passion. I think, in a few, I think in some versions it says suffering. After his suffering. But here it says passion. I think King James also uses that word passion. Let's stop there for a second. Passion. Wait a minute. Does pa- doesn't passion mean like pictures in our mind of just people madly in love with each other and just this hot exchange of love and passion and, and just everything that just comes with the world's pictures of what that all looks like and, and just a steamy situation. I mean, you know, passion, you know, you know, and we see this cosmetics with the word passion on it and passion fruit. And, but you know what passion in the, in the Bible, it talks about, it's very different. It's not all that sweet, heavy stuff. Passion is something that's ugly and it's not something really beautiful to look at. It, passion is a man ripped to shreds on a cross crying, Father, forgive them, because they have no idea what they're doing. Father forgives them. That's passion. That's suffering. Suffering because of love. I was thinking about some of you guys here. You know, I was thinking about Johnny Cannon. He's not here today. We're talking about him too. Johnny and his wife. Johnny is this young guy. He just got married. He's got this. They just got this. They just had a kid. I don't know when it was. September, right? Or I don't remember when they had their child. No, July, right? I don't remember. And this guy, you know, he's like, he's got this, he's out there working, his, he's just working his butt off. He's working so hard, and his wife, she, she takes her, their, their little infant to work, and she does, she does, um, she watches kids, I think, at Gateway Baptist. And this is a very hardworking young couple, and they are just all in. I just love what they do here in this church, and, and they, they just show up. Last week I was here, or the week before, and Johnny was right here with his little infant right there in, in, a, you know, in, the, in the stroller. And I thought, that's passion. He comes home from work, and he's wiped out, I'm sure, extremely tired, physical labor, maybe just all the weirdness of just wacky people that you're working with. He comes home, and he's there to minister to his wife and kid. That's passion. That's passion. How about this? When you're a mom, and your kids betray you, and they, and they steal from you, or whatever they do to you, and they, and I'm just thinking of one mom that I know that lives up in Conroe. And just recently her son came to visit her and, and he just wiped her out. 
that he just was on drugs, just fell and just, just wiped her out, lost the car and just wiped her out. And, and I talked with her recently and she goes, I love my son. That's passion. That's passion. Passion means that there's something inside of me that loves someone else that's bigger than me. And that's gospel love, isn't it? That was what was in Jesus because you can't kill that. You can't kill that love. You can't kill it. You can sin against it. You can, and we, I know that for sure because we, when we sin, we're sinning against that love. And, you can, and, and we could actually murder it. We could actually misinterpret it. We can accuse it and we can kill it. You know what it's going to do? It's going to rise on the third day. And it's going to come up and it's going to walk into your upper room that you and I are hiding in because we're afraid and we're guilty and fearful. And it's going to say one thing to us. It's going to say, peace unto you. Peace unto you. We're good. I pay for that sin. I don't know what you and I are worried about today. Maybe there's something on your mind. Maybe something about your past. Maybe there's something that's telling you that you're not qualified to be in this church. You're not qualified to be in the fellowship. What are you doing with these amazing people? And you know what the answer to that is? It's this gospel love that when we were yet sinners, when we were transgressing God, think of the worst moment. You're like, don't think about it too long. When you were out there, when we were doing that crazy stuff, Christ loved us. When we were, when we were weak, there's another in, in, in Romans chapter 5, when we were weak without strength, how many times are you weak? Like, God, I just don't got it. I don't got it today. I don't, have got, I don't got it to fight temptation. I don't got it to do this. I don't, got, I don't got it to go forward and to live by faith in my life. When we were weak, and then when it says when we were enemies of God, I don't know if you've been an enemy of God, when you were shaking your fist at God and cursing him like Paul was, when we were in that state, Christ died for us. You cannot kill that love. and You cannot kill that, forg- that forgiveness. And this is what, and this is the main point of the message here. I want you to take this home. If you forget everything I said today, take this home. That the first church came alive and became animated and became zealous and with all the zeal and love that the first church had to lay down their lives, to do everything that they shared, everything in common because of one thing, that they were a wreck and then God came into their life and saved them and gave them grace and gave them love and gave them peace and put them in a group of people that thought the same way about them. Amen. Amen. That's the church today. That's the church. And I'll finish with this. It's a church today. It's a group of people that when someone comes through that door, we are the only group of people in this universe that are not going to look at people after the flesh. I don't know you after the flesh. I don't want to know your story sometimes. People sit down and say, I want to tell you all my sins. I don't necessarily need to know that because it's been crucified and it's been separated from you and it's not who you are. And it's like, you know, if, you're, if you shot somebody and the police are on their way to the church, maybe I should know that. But like, it's like, I don't need to know all that because it's all been buried and it's been separated and it's not who we are. We are not our sin. Romans chapter 7 verse 20 says that I am no longer, I am not my sin. I love that. That's the great statement. It's the great, that's the great declaration of the church. And when we live that way and we think that way and we function that way and we, and we fellowship that way, what happens? We pull together, we come together and we are edifying ourselves in love and then there's a missional purpose. And, then, and, and, only what, and, and what happened yesterday is the inevitable result we are sitting down with people and we're telling people, this is what God did in my life. And I want to tell you about what God did, you know? I see you guys on Facebook posting stuff like, hey, I went through this. If I can help you, let me know. Reach out to me. That's gospel. That's awesome. That's God. And so I want to finish with that. The church 
is what it is because we are looking at Jesus Christ and he's the author and he's the finisher of our faith. And if you don't have faith and if you don't have anything going on in your life, don't look at yourself. It's only going to get worse. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at him and he's going to say, you know, you're Peter. I got a call on your life and you're going places and you're going to turn this world upside down. You're going to turn your neighborhood upside down. Why? Because that's just the way God is. God is a life-changing God. Amen? Let's pray.